You're listening to a podcast from the Media Motel. Coming up this week in episode 573, a trek to Wembley, plus a mixed experience at the London Palladium, Love Me Do at 60, I Hate You on Channel 4, and the contrasting worlds of Anthony Bourdain and David Dimbleby. That's all coming up after Squeeze and Hourglass. Scarcely believable 35 years old with um, a Salvador Dali influenced video straight out of the glory days of MTV. And it, it led to this being their biggest hit in the States, number 15 on Billboard. Number 16 in the UK from the summer of 1987, Squeeze and Hourglass. I've never come across a Squeeze song that I don't like. I think they're an excellent band. They're, they, they're underrated, I think, in the pantheon of great British acts. But uh, but they're they're very reliable. I'm a I'm a big supporter of the Squeezers. <laughs> the squeezes. Uh, hello, thanks for joining us for episode 573 of the Parish Council. I'm Terence Stackham and founder member of the Anti-Growth Coalition. It's Juliet Harris. I mean, it's like that, that sort of um, it, there was a there's a lovely list in one of the later Adrian Mole books. I think it might be the Wilderness Years. Um, it's either the Wilderness Years or the Cappuccino Years where Adrian Mole can be found working in a Soho restaurant called Savages run by a bloke whose surname is Savage. I believe he was played by Keith Allen in the TV adaptation and he puts a a large list in the front window of people he does not want to come into the restaurant and no Liverpudlians, no Scousers, no lesbians, no vegetarians. It's an excellent list. I I felt it was better than Liz Truss's list. Had they they reeled off, you know, people that weren't allowed, no people in red socks, for example, things like that. I would have much preferred that as a list. But it is, what can I say? It's a delight to be sort of, you know, public enemy number one in multiple different 
different ways. Good morning, everybody. It, it reminded me of the uh, older listeners may tune in now of the Gilbert mm. and Sullivan opera where the, the yes. um, character comes out and says, I've got a little list. Yes, and, exactly. Uh, <laughs> well, didn't Peter Lilly do that at, at Tory conference years and years ago um, to have a go at single mothers, if I remember correctly? <laughs> really Just goes to show more yeah. things change yeah. the more they stay the same. Oh, and I was going to say to you, Jules, in passing, before we arrive Go upon on. the business of the day. Yes, indeed. I, I, uh, so so we're setting the agenda at this moment in time yes, before right. reaching is, the first item on the agenda. This is sort that, of like the, the the prologue version of any other business, isn't it, really? Yes, exactly go on. Exactly so. You couldn't have put it better. I, I just want to mention for you to help me understand something. Earlier on, I stumbled, um, I just came across this opinion poll by the leading pollsters, Redfield and Winton. Mm. And it was a poll in which they were asking about British people's reactions to items in the news. And people were asked if they'd heard a significant amount about a story, a fair amount mm. or not at all. That, that, those all seem reasonable metrics, don't re- they? Re- reasonable choices, yes. In in relation to a question, um, it was about the death of Her Majesty the Queen. yes. Three percent of those asked, British people asked, said they had heard not at all. Uh, sorry, what? <laughs> so my question to you <laughs> where, is, where have you been? Yes. Who are these three yes, percent of people exactly. who had not heard of the death of the Queen? It's I mean, I, th- I think they're probably living the most blissful life, aren't they? Because they're just completely disconnected from everything by the sound of it. I mean, I presume that they live in woods somewhere and they're, and they're just be. having a lovely time. That, well, they must be people. They must live in civilization in order to be asked to take part in this opinion poll. So, um, you know, well, they, I, mean, they, yes, I don't think I the doubt. posters walk through Burnham Beach's woods into the depths and I mean, say, oh, I, there's an old man living under a tent. Let's ask him. I mean, are they men of a certain age that think they're funny? Because yeah. they, they are around. I would never yeah. include you in this subset, Sati, but there, yes. are, there are men around that, that of a certain age that probably thought that that was hilarious. Uh, or maybe, yes, yes. maybe they're very sarcastic people and the people at Redfield and Winton are just very, you know, yes. very trusting people. Maybe it's that. Yeah, that could only be it because the, the, the only other thing would be that, like, for the previous month, they've not read a paper, looked at a TV or the internet, mm. listened to the radio, spoken to family, friends, neighbours. I think that can only be it that they were just winding up the poll, poll people. Well, I, um, I suspect so, yes. And, and, you know, if I was living in the woods, I wouldn't want people to ring me. So, so maybe it's that. I don't true. know. Well, no one could ever say you hide from modern life because you underwent a cross-country trek to get to Wembley on Friday evening. I did. I'm very much committed to the cause of our, our lionesses, our as lionesses. my friend keeps insisting on calling them. So I took a trip to uh, to Wembley Stadium, which I am still calling New Wembley, Sir because <laughs> I'd never been to New Wembley. Oh, I went to right. Old Wembley. Yeah. So, so someone said to me in the summer when we were watching the lionesses in Brighton, I said this is the first time I've ever sung three lions in person whilst watching an England football team. And they said, did you not sing it when you went to Wembley? And I said, well, no, I went to Wembley in 1995. So three lions had not been written, I believe, at that moment in time when I watched England versus Brazil schoolboys at the old Wembley in March 1995. Um, The Ronaldo that very sadly latterly went on to become known as Fat Ronaldo was playing for Brazil at the time. The England scorer, the only goal of the game, came from uh, Mr. Michael Owen, who I believe was 15 and a half at the time. Three years later tearing it up in in the world yes. cup but uh, yeah so it was lovely to go to new wembley there were what can best be described as biblical downpours on the way in oh. to the point where three separate people texted me to ask if i had a rain mac because they were watching it on television and, and <laughs> aghast at the scenes that was going on as we said there's po- it's pointless buying a program because it probably would have dissolved <laughs> at that point in time because it was so rainy but i went with my friend janine who I, I like to watch football with we had an excellent time we weren't terribly impressed by the um the security stewarding i must admit which seemed to be a, a, a succession of men barking single word instructions it's sort of alarming volume and alarming kind of infrequency So we're very pleased with that. We we felt that we'd have better in stadium experiences. You're made to feel like an intruder, aren't you? Like you're a burglar. I know. It's it's like I've paid for this ticket. You know what? What else? It's it's like you know. 
we've bought tickets to watch football and you're somehow affronted that I've turned yes. up your stadium Absolutely. to watch football. It was it was fine getting there. It was a rail strikes abound on the Saturday, which meant I had to travel home courtesy of National Express, which was really very good until we got caught in traffic in Gatwick. And then. I mean, so, so I will tell you about the Linus in a minute, but the real hero of the weekend was the woman that was driving the National Express coach back back from um, London to Brighton. So National Express do not deign to send coaches to Hastings anymore from London. Apparently we don't <laughs> exist. So, so I had to basically drive to Brighton on Friday, park in a parking space, which I had pre-booked online, thanks to your, your handy tip, stay in a reasonably pleasant hotel on the Friday evening and then I had to come on the coach back on Saturday and then drive home from Brighton to Hastings so all things going well on the coach Victoria coach station very well organized lots of gates lots of tannoy announcements helpful staff that sort of thing pre-booked to space was allowed onto the coach first all well and good so far until we hit traffic at Gatwick and at that, that moment in time the air conditioning ceased to be oh, on our no. coach oh, and no. I just sat there sweating like meatloaf, Terence, I'll be frank, for about an hour. Be colded anyway. It was very sunny at this point. This heroic woman that was driving the coach said to us, sort of, sort of, uh, you know, sort of apropos of nothing when we pulled up at one of the stops, is it really hot on here? And everyone basically sort of, I think we'd lost the ability to speak at this point. Everyone just sort of sweated in her direction. To which she rather heroically said, I'm so sorry, I'm of a certain age and I thought it was just me. Oh, and it. at which point she she then, like I can only describe it, stomped down the middle of the coach, punching the roof lights out in the sort of punching the, the kind of the roofs out so that we could then have this thing. Rang up and heroically swore at a man about the air conditioning, who I assume was some poor National Express employee <laughs> located somewhere. And uh, and yes, and drove us back and was and was wonderful. So shout out to that woman who then gave, encouraged everybody to complain to National Express about the temperature of the coach and gave us the code to do so. And people were interjected at this point that apparently you can get your money back if you complain vociferously. So there was very much a sort of blitzkrieg spirit on this on this overheating coach on the way back down. But the Wembley the stadium experience itself we were sat very very high up we were sort of about five rows well maybe about 10 rows from the very top of Wembley oh, that is high uh, up, yeah. it was and behind one of the goals so it took a little while to adjust to the fact that if I slipped I probably would have fallen <laughs> a great height and probably landed in the lap of Megan Rapinoe which <laughs> I wouldn't be unhappy with that as a scenario but anyway we um we had overpriced hot dogs. I can't describe them as anything other than that. Um, we were very impressed by the huge amount of sweet things for sale. I queued for a donut that was called The Homer, which I was quite impressed oh, very by. Good. I must admit it was large and pink and had sprinkles on the top. It it was five pounds, which I still can't quite believe that Lord. I let myself. I know that we talked into that. Mm. But anyway, overpriced catering aside, we enjoyed the match. Um, there was we very much enjoyed the parade of former players in a rather lovely touch. The uh, women's football was banned for some time because quite right too. I'm as good as that. Oh, you sound like my parents. Anyway, so um, <laughs> so so the, the the first thing women's football team back when it was unbanned in 1972 were never awarded caps. So what they did was they had these uh, uh, as many as they could gather up. The original 1972 women's team were posed for given caps on pitch and oh, posed lovely. for a photo with the current team beforehand. And there was a parade of 150 former players at halftime, which we missed because we were buying overpriced donuts. But um, but it was we had a I thought it was very thoughtfully done. We couldn't quite understand why Megan Megan Rapinoe was booed continuously throughout yeah. the match. We weren't yeah. quite sure what the backstory was there. There was a minute silence to do with, we think it was to do with the recent revelations regarding the reporting to abuse in women's football in the States particularly. And that was yeah. very well observed. But um, no, we had a we had an excellent. There was lots of loud music plays. There was some enjoyably female focused songs at half time. We saw a group of people very enthusiastically dancing to "Man, I Feel Like a Woman" by Shania Twain, which <laughs> I would not have expected at a football match. Um, we had we had a very good time. I mean, it was everything was bigger on scale to the Amex, so so that was a little bit disconcerting. Mm. But um, no, we had an excellent time. The atmosphere was lovely. We didn't really feel apart from the booing of Rapinoe, which rather disappointed yeah. you feel we didn't feel 
it, it didn't feel any different to to when we've watched watched in Brighton in the, the, the women's football atmosphere just more family friendly really it's mm. just it's just much more much more chill i think a friend of mine talked about seeing large groups of football fans nearby and not getting any of the aggro that they usually yes, would, yeah absolutely lots of, lots of dads and daughters and all that sort of thing so so as always up the lionesses however please do not charge me five pounds for a donut ever again and national express make sure your air conditioning works yes the the aspect of the stewarding i find this everywhere mm. now and i, I mean I'll, I'll come on to this in a minute when i talk about mm. my uh, adventures mm. in london the other day mm. uh, in a similar stance but um even at, I, I hate to diss my own club, Chelsea. Now, I'm not showing off, but this season we're in um, hospitality for the season. We, we, it's very nice. Mm. But to get to that point, you have to go through, um, you arrive at Chelsea, you, you have to show that you've got uh, legal entry at the yes. out, at, just off the pavement. And that's fair enough, security. Yeah, fair enough. Um, yeah, that seems reasonable we, to me. We've got these like, cards that are like season ticket cards, so you show those. But it's the attitude. Then you have to um, have a bag search at a separate place. Mm-hmm. Then you have to show your uh, card again uh, to get into the stadium. And then, unbelievably, a different card to get into the lift. What? And then That's mad. Know, and so I'm, I'm really absolutely serious. I'm not exaggerating any of this. But at each of those stages, and I hate to say this, I love my club and I love mm-hmm. Stamford Bridge. You are made to feel like you're intruding on their day and yes. that you're a burglar. Why are you here? Yeah, exactly. I um, bearing in mind we're in hospitality yesterday. Uh, we were well, there well I'd game. expect you to be treated with some degree of deference, frankly, given that you've probably absolutely. paid considerably more to be there than other people have. Absolutely. And um, yesterday um, I went I was uh, I was popping to the bathroom uh, before the game and um, you have to go through this door to get to the bathroom. And I I got to the door and this chap, uh, probably about 17 in an oversized high vis jacket said, oh, no, he said, yeah, where are you going? And I said "Uh, to the bathroom. And he went, oh. And, and you th- I mean, like Spain, actually, I hope he's on the other side of that door, because that's my plan, <laughs> for goodness sake. I know, I know. But this is the sort of thing, this is that sort of approach that um, puts me off going anywhere. I mean, I, mean, I think I mentioned a few weeks ago, we, we recently made a decision not to venture into London to gigs anymore because of the madness of the traffic, trying to park mad people everywhere. Um, so if perhaps... You know, maybe it was foolish. We d- we decided to break that rule and go and see Lindsay Buckingham mm. at the London Palladium last week. Um, parked off Berkeley Square, walked over and co- I- again, I hate to say it, but just encountering a host of mad people en route. And, you know, I feel obviously very sorry, care in the community and the number of people that clearly need help. But when you're just trying to get from your car to an event and you're not bothering anybody, but there's just an, an, an army of people coming mm. up to you, getting in the way, dancing in the street, shouting, yelling. Um, it's, it's only a, a short time ago that we saw, uh, coming back um, off Regent Street, a man totally naked in a doorway, washing himself, literally oh, naked gosh. in a doorway. So you know, it's it's London is mad now. Anyway, and it's and and it just it's just sad that 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 services have broken down uh, on a oh, national absolutely. scale you know, to the point I where that's no how it is. It. Yeah, no, I'm knocking the people concerned as such, but it's just it's just mayhem. So we go to see Lindsay Buckingham. Uh, oh yeah, and the next day he cancels his entire tour. So I'm not sure if those two things are coincidental. I was going to say, go to well, him, well, he well, once, the tour. once they played for you, what, what you know, what, yeah, what other what was the point in going are there on? to grab? Really, exactly. I, I don't know what's wrong, but he did. I did notice he kept wringing his hand, like making a fist and then letting oh, it dear. out. Yeah, well, I wonder if there's some sort of nerve damage. Maybe or something, something mm-hmm. or was it RSI or something? But he, he was absolutely fantastic, and by mile hmm. the best guitarist I've ever seen. But what I just wanted to say was. Um, rather in your sort of um, mild criticisms of Wembley, I was reinforced with my weariness of London and its venues. The Palladium Bar, it's absolutely fantastic. It's gorgeous. It's mm, historic. It's beautiful venue. Monsters, yeah, absolutely. All over the place of, you know, the 1950s and 60s and all the stars that were there. And can I, can I just have a moment to self-aggrandise yeah. and point out by saying it's such an iconic venue that T, so T sent me a photograph of the inside and said, yes. where, from his seat and said, where am I this evening? And I said, 
are you at the Palladium? You knew it, straight it's, it's away. It's instantly recognisable. What an iconic gorgeous venue. venue. So this enormous bar, not one table or chair in the whole bar oh, area. Oh, for goodness it's sake. Absolutely crazy. For, obviously, for Lindsay Buckingham, most people were going to be, let's just say, senior. In, in I was going to say, of an accelerated age, as I heard someone exactly. say in a meeting the other day. With the exception of in front of us, the only two people standing in the Palladium, they were high as the highest flying kites, two young lads, and they were throwing drinks in the aisle, smooching, throwing their arms about, yelling out, whooping, whoa, Lindsay, whoa. And what did the ushers and the security do? Nothing. So and then my my final moan, which is my my London. I was going to say, I'd, I'd sorry everyone. We will actually talk about things we will that talk are not about annoying music shortly. Yes. Nine fifty p.m. We were out. It started at eight. He did uh, an hour and a half, no interval, and out we come. I mean that's that's very good. I'm very oh, pleased lovely. with that as a very, of, very uh, as a, as a way to proceed. So 10 to 10, we tried various restaurants in the very close vicinity to the Palladium. So we were right in the heart of London, just off Oxford Street, Argyle Street. I mean, in the centre of everything, really. In the centre of everything. Most of these restaurants, three quarters empty. Hello, Mm. um, can we uh, come in? Have you booked, sir? No. Sorry, can't help you. 9.50 in the evening on Saturday, we got to about five restaurants came home and made pasta um and then another bloke um started following us across Berkeley square back to the car with a strange sort of flapping feet and um it managed to get rid of him but you know maybe we're unlucky but it's just such a heavy duty evening that yes. again we just said let's not do this again well quite it's, it's difficult isn't it because i think we've all i think we've all spent so we spent so much time indoors for so long yeah. that all of a sudden, and I think we, we, we talk about this on occasion on the podcast, all of a sudden, everything feels so much now when you go out, doesn't it? So everything, yes. it, it was yes. stuff that we probably would have brushed off five years ago is yes. just the rough and tumble of everyday life now just feels insurmountable. I mean, there was a moment when we were queuing to get in, with Wem- in Wembley and it was absolutely sheeting down, oh. which I put, thought, I really want to see this match, but if someone clicked their fingers now and <laughs> magicked me back to the hotel around the corner and I could spend yeah. the rest of the evening watching crap on E4, I probably would have done it. Yeah. And it's it's... It's a difficult one, isn't it, really? And it's, you know, and actually the match itself was great and we really enjoyed it. And it was it was, you know, really entertaining and a wonderful atmosphere. But, yeah, like you say, it's just, you know, it, it just everything feels so much now, doesn't it? When, yes. when, you, when you're going to different places, yes, like when exactly. I was sat sweating on a coach yes. yesterday, mm. it's just, you know, it, it, and obviously I didn't have some huge tantrum or anything. There was very little that could be done, but it's just... Yeah, it just makes you think I could just be at home, couldn't I? And and I'm meant to be this podcast token young person. <laughs> and even then, you know, I had a DJ gig last night. Was I was I rocking until the early hours after my set from nine till ten? I did not drink so that I could drive myself and some other people home. And I managed to sit in bed at quarter past eleven. Do you know what? <laughs> that was that was ideal. Yes. Said so maybe are we not built for modern life, or is modern life less? Maybe not. I think, due to, but by the way, due to the train strike that you referred to and ridiculous roadworks on the A4 and M4, 14 mile journey home, two hours in the car last night to get back from Stamford Bridge. For goodness sake. But like you, I just, Lindsay, like you were saying, the match was great. The Wembley experience was great. Lindsay Buckingham was great. It was yes. just everything around it to get there, Absolutely. to get away. Oh, my God. Coming up, Love Me Do at 60 and mm. I Hate You on Channel 4. That's next after Debbie Harry. Rain. 
song very much passed me by at the time, and um, and I, I hadn't been familiar with it. But like many people across Britain, I'm very much enjoying the Top of the Pops TOTP 93 oh. repeats that have been going on on BBC Four at the moment. That's where they've reached, and it suddenly got really, really good. I mean, that the good people seem to be cropping up all the time. And this was a this was a tune that was the other week, and I really liked it. I thought it was very well sung by by Debbie Harry. Her nineties output not particularly celebrated, but I I very much enjoyed it. I found myself singing along, even though I'd never heard it before. So I thought we could all listen to it here. Um, I can see clearly by Debbie Harry. I forget that she had those uh, solar records, but I did want to say what a great title for the album that this comes from: Debravation. Oh, oh, that's really good. very good. Um, I can just about um, remember the release of Love Me Do um, 60 years ago this week. Just about. My father brought home the single. Mm. We played it a lot. I was rather more taken by the B-side, uh, P.S. I Love You. But um, famously, of course, George Martin didn't originally want Love Me Do as the first single. He had the Beatles mm. record a sort of demo of the Mitch Murray song, How Do You Do It, mm. which was um, so catchy that it was going to be a hit for whoever recorded it. But I think after pressure from the Beatles themselves, George Martin relented and advised that Love Me Do would be their debut. Uh, of course, it's pivotal because it launched their name, image and sound mm. to the UK in late 62. But it only reached number 17. And my view is it's only in hindsight and retrospect that it has become revered because because Jules by any other band it it could be described as a bit slow and dirgy mm. love love me do plod 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 bit slow and dirgy I would describe it as pedestrian, probably. Hmm. Um, yes, I don't disagree with you, although I can never quite take it seriously. Ever since I, I read of George Martin's um, criticisms of the mix, and when the harmonica comes in at the end of Love Me Do, he was apparently quoted as saying that the harmonica had to come down at the mix because at the moment he's singing Love Me War. And yes, actually, yes. I, I don't think that ever changed. It still sounds like Love Me War to me. Yes. I mean, it's a... It, like you say, it's it's the song that started everything, so it has its its place in Beatles history mm. and therefore in music history. But yes, like you, it's not a song I find myself no. returning to a huge amount. Really, it's 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 fine is probably what I would say about it. And and for the Beatles, that is, I mean, yeah, it's it's it. I can't. I, I'm obviously delighted that it came out because, as, as everyone that listens to this podcast knows, the Beatles have made a huge contribution to both of our lives, and, and we love them. But, um, yeah, I, I can't work up much enthusiasm about it. Well, obviously, it's better than anything yeah. I will ever write, but it's... Um, yeah, it's it's just it's just a bit meh, isn't it, really? Just in a way, it was rather odd for Love Me Do to be chosen as first single because it was written way back before Hamburg, and um, at at the time in '62, they already had um, "I Saw Her Standing There," "Ask Me Why," "There's a Place," many others. But I'm just catching what you said there. I think I think that's probably the important point is in a sort of sliding doors way. If we hadn't got Love Me Do as that first single, the rest might not have happened. So absolutely. Happy 60th birthday to uh, to Love Me Do. Yes, thank you for bringing us the fabulous Beatle Boys. Yes. The new series, um, I Hate You on Channel 4, it might have passed us by if it hadn't been for the reviews. Um, almost all of them um, really just saying no thank you to I Hate You. And notably on... Uh, an absolutely damning review in The Telegraph as uh, some quotes. This puerile, strenuously zany comedy is nothing but irritating. Uh, this misfiring mm. comedy is easy to dislike. Uh, this disappointing mess. So we thought, can it really be that bad? And popped along to Channel 4's streaming service to find out. I hate you, uh, Jules. Is it a disappointing mess? Do you know, I, I I watched it hoping that I would find lots in it to like. Hmm. It's, I mean, I don't know what I thought of it, really. I didn't laugh out loud once, but then that's not necessarily unusual for comedy with me. Hmm. And that's not necessarily, I can, I can enjoy things in, in multiple different ways. It was just, the, I think the thing that I found 
the most difficult about it was the fact that it just I felt like I could see all its workings on show so so it didn't really feel very effortless in terms of sitcoms it was like oh this is how you, you structure a sitcom so, so it very much felt like three acts it very much felt like oh this is the side character this is the plot I could sort of see where the plot was going and it, you know it was, it was pretty predictable I I I lacked warmth for me. It was it was called I Hate You. Yet I say it lacked warmth. The the central two characters seemed to get on all right, despite the fact it was called <laughs> I Hate You. Although they spent their whole lives sort of pranking each other. You never get the impression that they hated each other particularly. It was just, you know, that was just how they were. It it just it didn't really feel like it was anything really. Do you know what I mean? It, it mm. wasn't it wasn't very warm, but it wasn't like completely. It lacked the sort of scabrous, scabrous kind of bits of curb your enthusiasm, which we enjoy yes. very much. It it didn't it didn't land anywhere for me really. I thought the two women were, were were quite good in it. They were they were fine. I thought that they the two of them had chemistry and that worked together quite well. I I didn't. I wouldn't say that I absolutely hated it. However, I'm unlikely to watch it again, just simply because it was just a bit nothingy, really. It was it was just um, it was quite short. It was 24 minutes long. And I, I don't know. I, I just couldn't. Again, I couldn't work up the enthusiasm for it, really. I didn't think it was awful. I thought it was reasonably well structured. But in a way, it was almost too well structured because it just felt like I was watching how to write a sitcom. Do you know what I mean? I could I could just see. I, I it just felt very predictable to me. We were warned before it even began to expect adult humour and strong language from the start, which is mm. one of Channel 4's favourite uh, preempts. But uh, yes, it's largely in terrible taste, but I, that's why I think I rather enjoyed it, uh, perhaps a little bit too much. It, I thought it was uh, quite sharply written with the dialogue timed beautifully. It, yes, it's very childish, very childish. Yes, um, that's uh, a good word. I, kind of appeal from that it, i thought it had tones of peep show and very much as you say curb your enthusiasm i yes. jotted that down uh, as a as a sort of key point uh, like you i was very impressed or rather impressed with the two leading actors yes, tanya they reynolds had talent. They had very, had very very good tanya reynolds as charlie and melissa saint as becker i thought they were yes, great they but were they, very good but i think where i'll i'll um come over a bit more to your side is um which is maybe where the dilemma came for such a youthful cast and young feel, because it was really from a very young person's point of view, sort of flat sharing early 20s. It's maybe odd that it's created by a bloke in his 50s, Robert Popper, and directed by another bloke in his 50s. Um, I mean, the theme of the first episode was age shouldn't be a factor. Yes, exactly. I think that kind of provided a bit of a strange juxtaposition because it was then sort of we viewed it from the point of older men, really, seeing how young women would be living their lives. Mm, Absolutely. It was a little bit... um... I don't know. I guess, uh, like you, I agree. I mean, it seems a little bit, yeah, it seems a bit superfluous. Why Why have we got men in their 50s writing about women in yeah. their 20s when we've got people like Phoebe Waller-Bridge and Michaela Cohen and people like that who are women in their 20s and 30s exactly, writing yeah. really, really well? I mean, this was, yeah. I did, there wasn't only two camera stuff, but it was trying to capture the tone of Fleabag, I think, particularly yes. the first yeah. series where the storyline around her friend that has passed away that she ran the cafe with there, mm. there's there's there was elements of that in it but like you say it didn't really just didn't it was it was and there were there were bits of surrealness in it which just didn't work really like one of the characters apparently having painted a tomato white um it was it was just a bit it was just a bit random for me yeah. and a bit sort of oh let's try and make it kooky and again that felt a little bit like men in their 50s that have watched women in their 20s and 30s and gone oh yes it's sometimes a bit serene and kooky let's do that because all young women are serene and kooky it was it was a little bit yeah, yeah like you say it was there was something about it that didn't quite work and maybe that was the reason behind it i don't know but but no discredit at all to the two women who were in it who were both really great. good yeah. and that was perhaps the most frustrating thing about it because you felt their talents could be very much better used elsewhere it made me smile in places. I rather enjoyed it. I hate you. 
and all six episodes are on all four and as Jules said they're all um, very short just over 20 minutes each so dabble into it if you'd like to give it a go coming next the lives of Anthony Bourdain and David Dimbleby and the striking difference between an autobiography and a biography an unauthorised biography that's right after the czars I had a dream last night a nightmare to be exact it couldn't take the heat and the sweat dripped from our backs I didn't go I waited for the midnight sun a lovely song a, a very um highly rated band who couldn't convert that admiration into wider sales despite the presence of uh, uh, of the voice of john grant a single from their last album in 2004 the czars and paint the moon yes very big fan of the czars that's an excellent choice over the years some authors have made a career out of scandalous or shocking biographies obviously unauthorized back in the 70s and 80s I uh, remember the writer Kitty Kelly wrote controversial books about Jackie Onassis, Elizabeth Taylor, and a particularly salacious unauthorised biography of Nancy Reagan. Sometimes biographies uh, said to be un- un- unauthorised, but we, we later find out that the subject cooperated very closely, like the Princess mm. of Wales and Andrew Morton. Yes. Now, Anthony Bourdain was a well-known television personality, a chef, a travel writer and a presenter. 
he took his own life in 2018 in extremely sad, very personal circumstances. This week, an unauthorised biography of Bourdain by Charles Learson is published, uh, Down and Out in Paradise, the, the Life of Anthony Bourdain. Now, there are concerns here, and I'd really like to know your view on this, George, because Learson has got hold of letters and, in particular, texts that Bourdain sent to, towards the end, showing a man in great distress. Yes. And I, I'm wondering if this is all a step too far, just too intrusive. Yes, I'm inclined to agree, actually. But And I think that the, the key to all of this here is unauthorised. Yeah. That is that that is the word that is really the key to unlock this. It just it feels really grim, doesn't it, really? Yeah, uh, Anthony Bourdain a really talented broadcaster, chef, writer, that that sort of thing that was very much liked by everybody from what I can gather, or very much admired by a lot of people who did live his life in a reasonably open way, I think, and that's what made his writing so compelling. Having said that, though, that was his choice and that was matters under his control because he was alive and now that he's passed away i think it's pretty tawdry to you know to, to rifle through the belongings of a dead person which it feels like it literally happened here yes, with these exactly, letters and things yeah, yeah. and to then sort of tell a story without any blessing of his of, of anthony bodan's estate it it just feels a bit ambulance chase. It feels very it feels yes. like the worst vestiges of the tabloids to me. It feels uh, and and that's not to say. So we we've talked in the past about how it is difficult for authorized things to be revealing because people will show you the story that they that they want to show you, won't they? So when we talked about the Wayne Rooney documentary, for example, it's like well there might be a more interesting story here, but we're not going to hear it because this is authorized by Wayne Rooney and very tightly controlled by the money making machine that is that is that sort of world so i'm not i'm not opposed to unofficial things per se because but you know if you have biographers that you know are are, are semi-authorized you get a more interesting sort of um you get a more interesting slant in it i think or you get perhaps a slightly more real slant you get a less filtered slant having said that though to do this when someone has passed away i think that that that's what upsets me about this i think really someone that isn't here and, and only four of, years ago so it's not like it's a hundred years exactly ago, and to portray the sad circumstances in the lead up to their death and uh, you know and 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 which resulted in their death is is really in poor taste i think and i and i and I'm, I'm not saying that that I'm not saying that everyone has to sort of kowtow to, to sort of to, to worry about not causing offence. But it goes back to the, the woke thing as well, doesn't it? The, the, the kind of the, the woke uh, sort of conversation that goes on in that I very rarely apologise for being woke because because most of the time I think it's not, you know, being a snowflake or being woke. It's being considerate and nice of other people, I think, really. So so I'm not saying that, you know, no one should ever criticise anybody else. What I'm saying is I think it was really unkind to, to be airing Anthony Bourdain's sort of very sad and upsetting, I don't want to say dirty laundry, but to, to air the unhappiness of his life as you say, only several years after he's passed away, with no authorization from anybody around Anthony Bourdain. It's, you know, what, what does this, what does this, what do we learn from this? I mean, when, when you have a discussion and a debate about sort of libel, one of the, one of the defences is, you know, this has been published in the public interest. I don't see what the public interest is in knowing that, that Anthony Bourdain was desperately unhappy before he died. It's just sad. You know, I don't see what we learn from it. I would much rather just watch Anthony Bourdain's excellent travel lodge pro, uh, uh, travelogue programmes and remember him like that. Yes, in a biography, revealing aspects of people's lives that they may not want to be made public is one thing, but detailing the intimate texts and words of a person in deep despair mm, in mm. the days and hours before horrible. end of his life. Yeah, it feels morally and even even tastefully wrong to me. And here, here we see the uh, the, the chasm of difference mm. between an unauthorized biography and an autobiography in that the the long serving. BBC broadcaster David Dimbleby has published his uh, autobiography "Keep Talking" this week. Yes, uh, great name, by the way. I yeah, like "Keep Talking." Yeah, story of his, some of his life, and unlike the book on Bourdain, he keeps his private issues pretty well away from the reader. Fair but, enough. but this 
but then you see, I, there's, a, there's a sort of line to be drawn here because mm. on the other side of the coin, although he fr- throws in a few jibes at the BBC that realistically one could have guessed his views on these subjects. I mean, yes, he's critical of handling of the Savile scandal. Well, who would have thought? Um, mm. But this makes me wonder, Jules, if this isn't too far in the other direction. I know one doesn't mm. have to buy mm. it, but in the other, blandness doesn't really make for a gripping read. It's true, isn't it? Um, I mean, it is possible to write about your broadcasting career in a way that is in, and you know, and, and write about broadcasting in a way that is interesting. I would recommend Emily Maitlis's excellent book, Airhead, very much. That is that is a really good account of someone writing about what it's like to be a broadcaster. Um, Steve Lemax, Going Deaf for a Living, another excellent <laughs> title of the book, is also worth a read because because uh, he talks a little bit about his, his sort of childhood, etc. But um, but it is very interesting. So. I think it's possible to write about broadcasting in an interesting way. It doesn't have to be about you. Um, one of the headlines that's emerged from, from David Dimbleby promoting this, very keen, um, the opening line, and this is so pompous, and I'm so glad it was punctured. I have been a broadcaster probably longer than anyone else on earth, at which point... Um, the excellent uh, Patricia Green, who plays Jill from The Archers and has done <laughs> since 1957, popped up and went, mm, I don't think you have, because I think that might be me. Fair play to her for uh, for bringing Dibbleby down. Um, it's a... Uh, what another sort of aspect of this? And I think Dimble is an excellent broadcaster. Would he have been? Would he have had those opportunities had he not been Richard Dimbleby's son? And there's always a little bit of a of a. This is one of the first instances of the modern phenomenon of the famous person, as as me and my my friend call it, the parents with a blue wiki link um, (laughs) sort of syndrome, where you see a young famous person and you think, oh, an actress usually, or, or or a young male pop star, and you think, oh, you know. See, looks, you know, they look good. Let's find out a little bit more about them. And you go onto mm. the wiki page and they say parents. And then you notice that one or perhaps both parents mm. have a, a, a highlighted. And when you click that, guess what? They're also somebody famous or known or, or that sort of thing. So perhaps in that sense, it might have been helpful to have a little bit of context as to how, how Dimbleby got to, got to where he was. I mm. think I'm a little bit sour about that, I must admit. Um, uh, having said that as well, just goes to show how quickly the news world and current affairs move. Um, it says in this this review, um, Keep Talking was sent to the printers long before Her Majesty ne- uh, breathed her last. The paper chat will requ- the paperback will require an extra chapter. So it just goes to show, doesn't it, where he was he was sort of around doing that. Um, it's it's not. Um, this isn't meant to be a confessional book, and I don't have an issue with it not being. Um, not being um not being sort of personal things and like you say it's a little bit light in that okay if you're going to write about broadcasting and and present yourself as a serious broadcaster and i mean that with a capital s and a capital b then fine but he um again we're caught in this space between an official story by given by someone that wants you to know about certain things and a wider story that could be written by somebody else that isn't as close but has to be written with respect more revealing probably than anything in the book he gave an interview to the sunday times magazine um last weekend Mm. in which he said that uh, despite his public persona he's really shy doesn't have any friends he said i'm not very good at chat i've got no chat and i thought that's that's me it's it's describing me because um people always think that because you've got uh you know you do something in public like say this or other work that i've done like that you're going to be a very sort of voluble chatty extrovert person but um Actually, like uh, David Dimbleby, I'm not either. You know, I I, I uh, um, find it sometimes quite difficult in social situations, mm. particularly when I always think back to I went to a wedding a, a couple of years ago and we're stuck on a table with some people. And there's the, the people. So, so, oh, that's oh, the most stressful part. Oh, of my God. You can imagine this. This man sat next to me. I never met him before. Never um, met him since. Said, oh, I hear you're the writer. Yes, you, you, you're the comedy writer. And he actually said to me, 
Tell me something funny oh, you wrote. No. Tell me something oh, funny. Man. And you know, I I could feel myself going sort of slightly pink and flustered, and um, you know, the old fight or flight thing came in. And uh, it, it, I do understand what he means when he says that, you know, because people mm. kind of expect you to be able having, to do a sort of stand-up having, routine. Having said that, though, mm. I I have less sympathy. Oh, right. My view is, if you'd said to him, "What do you do for a living?" and he would have said. I don't know. Um, I'm a heart surgeon. You wouldn't have turned around and gone, oh, well, can you open me up like now? Because I've got this pain. And I, I wonder if you could perhaps help me. And I do think it's a little bit, you know, yeah. I, when people say they do things for a living, yeah. I think that people are really people. Maybe it's a misguided attempt to show interest in other people. I don't know. But I remember yeah. one of the best pieces of advice I had as a young law student was from an excellent tutor called uh, and professor called professor Ian Smith at UEA big fan of him he was wonderful and he said to us don't ever 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 socially tell people at parties what you do for a living because everyone will spend the rest of the evening trying to catch free legal advice off you <laughs> and yes, and he was yes. absolutely right and I'm now very i mean i i don't work in private practice anymore anyway but i'm very very circumspect about whom i give my time to because it's it's yeah and and i just i and i and this is a real pet hate of mine that that you know oh tell us something funny then or if you said i'm a gp oh i've got this problem with this skin rash you know oh i'm a lawyer (laughs) i I, i'm a lawyer oh well our our neighbors are being are being difficult about our hedge it's like i've come to a wedding which probably i would rather be at home watching in gardens gardeners world than attending but i've attended because i feel i really ought to i'm eating food that you know, I could probably eat anywhere else. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm at this, I'm at this wedding. I'm, I'm sat with people that I've never met before, and, you know, please, please don't ask me about wills now. You know, it's, it's, it's just, yeah. I oh just, that's God, that the most stressful terrible. aspect, isn't it? Mm. That, that's the kind of it. You feel like, so, what's the most boring job that you can think of? Maybe I'm just going to tell people in the future I do data entry or something. I don't. <laughs> I, I just try to think of something that won't, won't, because even if you said I'm an undertaker, people wouldn't be put off, would they? They want to know about who the tallest person was you buried or something. So, so that is my biggest. Like you, I have considerably more small talk than you, Terence, but e- equally, yeah. my idea of hell is someone yes. who's usually very nice. To be fair, it's not these people yeah, that are yeah. nice asking you what you do for a living and then asking you repeated follow-up questions about yes. it. Absolutely. Thanks ever so much for listening this week always good to have you along i echo the sentiments of my excellent colleague can we um expect biographical revelations on your radio show jules i mean you know as tempting as it is to tell people um tell people you know sort of big things about my life though i have to say the, the late great janice long once said i think in a profile in the radio times that they used to have a profile at the back on the last page. They have a similar-ish version now, which is about what people like to watch on TV, um, right. called My Kind of Day. And it used to be a different person each each week. And Janice Long, I think, did this. And she was talking about her love of music, generally. Hmm. And she said, I think, that every record that she owned at one stage in her life, she could tell you when she bought it, <laughs> where she bought it and what she was wearing while oh, she bought oh. it if that's true that i mean i really admire that so i'm tempted to go janice long on on my show but i do try not to i would rather leave that to the late grace janice long who was who was brilliant a uh, smooth sailing 7 to 9 p.m noiseboxradio.com um aor mor yacht rock easy listening restful tunes for a sunday evening if you offered me a million guesses for the track you would choose to play us out this would not have been one of them. Well, what can I say? I, I continue, I, you know, it's my purpose to confound, mm. amaze and delight. So, and I hope I've yeah. done that again. This is not my usual pool no. in which I swim. I think this is one of the greatest <laughs> pop songs ever written. It's also for those of us that occasionally get harassed into doing karaoke and social gatherings. <laughs> again, its own special type of hell. But um, I... I like to do this at karaoke because it's not a difficult song to sing. It's in my range. Everyone knows it, the chorus at the very least. And it's a song that brings people joy. And I think lots of us that like to think we have good 
quote unquote taste in music, find ourselves very fond of this Max Martin penned moment of brilliance. This, this ultimate <laughs> Swedish flat pack pop. It is wonderful. <laughs> there is a documentary, I think it's still on BBC iPlayer. Have a look if you can. It's occasionally on BBC Four called Flat Pack Pop, the story of Swedish pop. And I think they talk to Max Martin in it about uh, this song. It's everything you would ever want a pop song to be. The Backstreet Boys, who knows if history will remember them or not, but I very much enjoy this. This is The Backstreet Boys. I want it that way. Yeah. You are my fire, the one desire. When I say I want it that way But we are two worlds apart Can't reach to your heart When you say Listening to a Parish Council production.